We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's the easiest way to avoid you blaming me for bad topics? Turn the topics over to you. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smithy. Goodbye, man. Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It's a mailbag episode. Mail's here. That's right. Uh, the thing I love about the mailbag episode is, first of all, it seems like uh, even when we ask your questions, the panel of experts on this lovely podcast don't even answer your questions, so I don't have to feel personal when it happens to me. But it also means that if topics come up that are polarizing or upsetting, I can say it's not me. It's you. You're polarizing and upsetting. But you are also the greatest, most beautiful, most wonderful people on the planet. This is the last you're going to be hearing of it, but it would be crazy if I didn't say thank you. Over 100,000 pounds, it's over $130,000 raised in one week of our fundraiser, smashed the goal, drew the winners for uh, the VIP luxury box. If you didn't win, I'm sorry. Better luck next time. But there will definitely be next time because we got to do that again. But what I wanted to just emphasize is... I know it's easy to just be like, oh, some fundraiser thing and the numbers look good. Like children will have books and clothes and shelter and food because of what you did. So thank you. Um, So I will leave it at that. And and a huge thank you to Arsblog also for the support he showed because we wouldn't have gotten there without him. And to Mairead King at the foundation and and everyone at Save the Children. Okay, so uh, today's mailbag episode, we are going to talk Emery and Shaka and Lacazette, but other stuff too, like transfers and Lacazette and Shaq and Emery, but also Southampton and stuff like that. Here with me now is Scott. You can find him on, oh, on Twitter, uh, if that thing still exists, if Elon Musk hasn't shut it down yet, at O underscore that don't subscribe. Hello, Scott. Yeehaw. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hold pause. Woohoo. Woohoo, indeed. Um, okay, all changed. By the way, over on Patreon, uh, we did our AVP clips, a new concept we're doing over there where uh, individual members get to sort of like give their solo thoughts without me interrupting or even asking dumb questions. And uh, Paul did his on Lacazette. Um, I did mine on inane ramblings. I'm not even sure what it was. Clive did a really interesting background on in his football background and his son's football background. And I thought that was really great for people who may have a kid going into the academy or, or something like that. So just something to keep an eye out for. And of course, we'll have our our um, instant reaction there. There are a lot of you that have signed up for Patreon over the years, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate it and how much it means. But as always, we're committed to getting a couple of these uh, main pods out every week, as always, and and just doing live streams. And so there's something for everybody 
um, whichever you choose, it just means a lot to us. So the first question, I will turn it over to you, Scott. This one comes from the Discord. New Oneni asks, Unai Emery is doing well in the Champions League with Villarreal. Does this mean he is the right coach for Arsenal? No, we've already kind of gone through that, right? I mean, we had a a good season, or at least a, an okay season, where I think the, the results kind of flattered the performances. Um, and then it kind of all melted down. And, you know, the chickens came home to roost. And then we had a, another, what, you know, four months of pretty turgid performances before he left. Um, I think that we that was a pretty good size sample to see that things didn't quite work. I think we can also agree that the club did some kind of short-term moves at that time that maybe didn't give him the the best foundation. But I think that there's just certain managers that fit certain teams. And I think that it's not that Emery is a bad manager. I just think he wasn't the right manager for Arsenal. Um, I'm very happy for what he's doing at Villarreal. It seems like he's doing quite well. But, you know, you kind of also look at their form in the league, right? And they're in seventh place. So they're like an upper mid-table team. And it's not like they're like pulling up roots, you know, trees and doing all those kinds of things there. Like they're basically performing to the level that you'd expect of Villarreal. Yeah, they're overperforming at a knockout tournament, but that's kind of his MO, right? He's a, a cup manager who does just fine in the league. And I don't know, I, th- I want someone better at Arsenal. So I'm, I'm happy for him at Villa- Villarreal. I don't think that we made a mistake letting him go. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems really simple to me that the guy is an extraordinary cup manager. And I mean, it didn't work out for us. Unfortunately, he did get us to the Europa League final and that didn't work out. We played a team that probably was a little bit better than us and it went really, really poorly. But like, I think you look right now at a guy who is not actually going to qualify for Europe next season unless he wins the Champions League as we as we identified. And like he's, it is the case that managers sometimes find a level or a fit that works for them really well. And then when they try something a little different, it doesn't. I, I think uh, Moyes, right, is, is a great example, Paul. Yeah, he sure. was, you know, I think pretty good at Everton, although Everton fans may have some mixed reaction. And, and now, once again, is doing pretty well for a club that seems to fit his stature, but went to a club that's a little more dysfunctional, a little more complex with a little more egos and, and a need to play a little bit different type of football in United, and that definitely didn't work. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of curious. And the reason I bring it up is like, look, it can be the case that Mikel Arteta is absolutely the right manager for us for the future, for the next 42 years. It could be the case that Mikel Arteta is not the right manager for us at all. And neither of those things mean that Unai Emery was the right manager, wasn't given the right chance, anything like that. I think there are a lot of people that have forgotten what that football looked like. And especially by the time he was finally sacked, how incoherent it was. And I would venture to say that while I have had deep, deep concerns about Mikel Arteta at times, the football to me, almost every step of the way, has seemed a little more structured, organized, and and I could identify at least what it was trying to do than some of the stuff under Emery. And I'm not trying to kill the guy because he can clearly manage a football club. But sometimes fit is is as important as capability. So do you do you yeah. really understand why there's sort of been hand-wringing over that? With, with I mean, I, look, I understand why it's happened, but what do you think about it? Um, yeah, I don't think it's about Emery, right? It's about people's anxiety about our current situation. Everything's hand-wringing about everything. So, uh, look, Emery, I think you nailed it with the fit. Uh, Emery was not really a fit for who we were or who we were about to be. Like, if you project... Emery's best football, 
that's not what we want to be. I don't mean in terms of style. I mean, he is a, a guy who's okay in the league, strong in cups. If you think of PSG, weirdly, that was kind of the same gig in the sense that, okay, the team was so deep, so strong, but they don't really care about winning the league. Like, it doesn't upset them when they don't win the year, league that year because all they really give a shit about is the cup, the mm. the the uh, Champions League. So that's why he was there. I mean, ultimately, he wasn't successful. But even that, even with one of the biggest, most possession-oriented teams on the planet, his gig was win the cup. That's why they got him. Um, and, like, that's the way he's wired. And it was never going to be – like, he was a good coach. Um, it could have kind of worked out with Arsenal, but not for the long term. It was never the match for our vision. Um, and, you know, the situation started getting away from him and he was a coach, not a manager. Um, and one of the difference, you know, we had this big discussion around Arteta wanting to be a manager, obviously, and being made a manager. And whether we love that model or not, it's probably a fit for this club, given the bit of the vacuum elsewhere. And unfortunately, with all the shenanigans and with Emery being a coach and leaving the manager, the the running the club to other folks, and we know the circus was the that was the other folks, it was probably always going to go badly. Ironically, somebody with an Arteta disposition might have been the better fit the first time round um, because he would have taken up that slack, that chaos in the management exec now uh, of course if you go back and look through the history of it would he have been allowed to you know would raul have given up that power probably not but that kind of a manager is is probably what we want and uh, you know you might argue more experienced more this more that more the other but he his vision of football his way of being a manager within the club his desire to be possession dominant and i think his overall level of ambition in terms of his football and ultimately achievements is a far better fit for us than emery yeah look it is also the case right that like i think people are too quick well i mean this is just the internet age right too quick to shift opinions on things based on the last thing they saw and emery getting past bayern munich in the in the champions league is an incredible achievement um, and you know, as you'd expect, it came with a decent amount of rear guard action and, and that that's how it's going to happen if you're going to get past, um, a Bayern Munich. But like one of the things I that think I think sometimes I think that still kind of downplays that it's like, I think they executed their game plan, like absolutely perfect. That's and, fair. Yeah. But, and, and Bayern didn't really create a ton of chances for how much, you know, I guess they camped in the final third. So yeah, I think they, they played really well, but this was going to be my point, Scott, is that. That the, the funny thing about being the underdog in the Champions League is you can play in a way that you cannot play in the league and be successful. You see what I'm saying? In a league scenario where you need three points every week if you want to achieve the kind of things that big clubs want to achieve, the kind of tactics that he's able to employ sometimes as the smaller team in a European tournament are not going to get it done. Right, you and I think I'm that's saying? one of the that we go back to, and it's like, you remember... I mean, at least one of the things that I always tore my hair out was that we would get outshot 
consistently in every game or it's like if arsenal went up one to nothing the the, the watford game the much ballyhooed watford game the thir- 30 exactly, shots right? against where, <laughs> where we would like go from like straight like oh we're in control we're doing stuff when we're you know nil nil uh as soon as we go up a goal it's you know 10 men behind the ball um you know we're you know defending outside the 18 yard box and like doing those kinds of things it's like that's just not the way that i want arsenal to play yeah so and i, I just want to say this about you know the arteta side of it is I think the reason I was more won over by this good run that that we were on prior to the international break is that it was the kind of football that I believed is long-term winning, get to top four, get to top two, get to top one type football. And even in some of the good periods under Arteta previously, my concern had been that I wasn't sure that football was the kind of football that can get you there. Um, there's a question about that coming up that um that I want to get to but but Paul let me give you this one this one comes from Sammy at AFC Sammy 10 hey guys long term hey Sammy Tierney's injuries are seriously concerning and I think there's a feeling we can't always be 100% on his fitness this is coming from a KT fanboy would you look for a first team replacement and shift KT out or bring in a better quality backup and, and I can verify that he is um, a uh, KT fanboy. He has uh, a Kieran Tierney image in his uh, Avi, his um, his Twitter Avi. So he's not saying this is a KT hater. I am guessing. Yeah. Hey, Sammy. Um, <laughs> I would bring in neither. I would bring one in right in the middle of it. I'd bring in somebody to compete at that position. Uh, Full on competition, not a replacement to ship him out. Uh, you need two. Um, I, I have low level and maybe at a higher level on a couple of occasions expressed my uh, question mark over Nuno Tavares' uh, applicability for the spot, uh, dating back from the, the moment we signed him. <laughs> if you check through the tapes, um, I always thought he was a long shot and it got longer. Um, so you need two and... Uh, we will be in two competitions next year. And so that that competition will play out over the next couple of years. And if if it doesn't, if one of them doesn't like being second choice in a year or two's time, then they want to move and then we sell them and we get a good fee. So you bring in direct competition in certain positions. And uh, I mean, uh, Tierney will compete. He'll probably bust every muscle he has training to beat the other guy at London Colony, and we'll never see him anyway because uh, that's the way he is. But you bring in direct competition to compete. You know, I mean, what is a backup? Let's bring in somebody not as good as Kieran Tierney. Doesn't sound like a win- winning philosophy at this point, given that he's not going to play that all the time, it seems. I mean, if he's yeah. going to be as dedicated to playing for Scotland, and he is, <clears throat> then his body does not seem able to take it and – that's that's hard for him and hard for us, but it means he's going to have to take on direct competition. Scott is going nuts in the chat right now, so I have to bring him into this conversation. But yeah, I mean, what I would say is this. In general, I think the idea of buying good backups is a thing people love to say, but it's actually very hard to do. If there is a player that is good enough to be your starter, they do not want to sign for a position where you have a clear number one. Unless you're City and you're like, hey, we'll give you 250 grand a week to be the backup. Okay, 
there's some people that wouldn't be willing to do that. But also, they're and trying to get go deep in four competitions in your first that, year. Yes, that that's a good point too, right? Like, look, you're going to get. I'm promising you the Champions League group stage. I'm promising you 20, 30 percent of the league games, and I'll give you the domestic cups. You know, whatever you may be able to to offer something. But like, realistically, also these these players want to get into their national teams, and they know that being a backup is bad for that. So like, you really have one of two options. You can do what we did, which is go get a young up and coming player to say you can learn your trade, you know, learn your craft with us and you get time when the starter goes down or in domestic cups. You can get a back end of their career guy who will take a good big club backup paycheck to be a backup, kind of like what Cedric did. But I really think the best thing you can do is if you think left back is a problem because of Tierney's injuries, then you need to replace Kieran Tierney. And that is not a thing that gives me any joy, Scott. But I think, it, let's say the interest from Real Madrid was a real thing, and you could get a 35 or 40 million pound offer from a Real Madrid for Kieran Tierney. I am going to lose whatever friends and, and supporters I had left and say, I'd sell him. I would sell him because availability is one of the most important abilities. You know, I go look back at the Robin Van Persie era, and I think Arsenal would have been probably better off not ever having Robin Van Persie. Because we would have had to get someone else good at striker. And if that person stayed fit for 35, 37, 38 games, those seasons surely would have been better than the ones where Van Persie was player of the season until January and then gone the rest of the season while we crashed out of every competition and watched our season circle the drain. Santi Cazorla is one of my favorite players. Was it good that we kept Santi Cazorla through all those injury rehabs? Well, you know, there were seasons where having to play like Coughlin and Flamini together cost us our ability to achieve anything. And so if Karen Tierney is going to miss a third of every season, then no matter how good he is, we are going to be in a situation where our season can't get where it needs to go because be of play. tail ends of seasons, right? Well, it's yeah, even- which is even more concerning and, and certainly an issue when you, you know, when you look at a season like this and, and what happened us after the international break. So, so Scott, explain why I'm not history's greatest monster. I love Karen Tierney. Maybe I've underrated his value. But if he's going to miss a third of each season, you can't get where you want to go with that being a regular occurrence. And, and maybe I'm going to just usurp you as history's greatest monster. That is my preference. Please do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not that I dislike Kieran Tierney. I think that you know he does all of the the things that you want to kind of see. He tries hard. He looks like he you know really supports the team. You know, he wears short sleeves when it's cold outside. He does all of those like things that fans really love, but. I don't know. When I look at him statistically and I try to unbiased myself, he just looks like an above average player, right? Like he's good. I'm not saying he's a bad player or anything like that, but I'm not saying that it would be impossible to find someone better than Tierney. Then can I just, can I just butt in one second about, I think some of that, when Kieran Tierney is allowed to overlap and get into the attacking third, I think he's a much more impactful um, fullback. Yeah. And in Tomiyasu's absence, I think he was given no, a role I, I, where he was doing f- less of the stuff he's really good at. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on all that too, right? So, and I think that's, you know, he does have those kinds of abilities too, right? Where he's played as a third center back. So he can do those kinds of things. Um, but again, I don't think that's his greatest strength. Yes, he can do it. But that's like saying Granite Xhaka can do a left back impression too. It's like, yeah, he can do it. And it's not the worst thing in the world, but that doesn't bring the best out of him. And I think even when he's playing as a bombarding left back overlapping, um, I, I think that you could still find someone who can do that 
just as well. Um, and you know, maybe can do other kinds of things that you want in a modern fullback. So it's not that I'm saying that Tyrion Scott. I don't think that he is irreplaceable. So yeah, if that Madrid interest was real, or if there is somebody that comes in and wants to, you know, buy him for thirty million or more, I, I would certainly entertain that. Um, this isn't to say that he's a problem or anything like that, but I think that when you do consider that he has injury issues, right? Like, I don't think he's had one season um, in the league where he started more than 30 games. And that was, you know, 2017, um, 18 at 20 with, with Celtic. Other than that, he's been 22 to 25 kind of starts, right? Um, and that's a, a problem when you play 38 games. That means there's 10 to 12 matches a year that you're going to have to fill with someone else. And, you know, we, we just talked about how hard finding a backup is. Um, someone who is fine playing, you know, 1500 minutes a year, um, who's not going to be the first starter when the other guy's healthy. Um, I don't think that there was a problem with us getting Nuno Tavares. That was something that we took a a gamble on and maybe it's not going to work out, but that's kind of what you have to do with um, this position. I I think that I would rather do that than get somebody who's at the end of their career and is willing to just be a backup. I'd rather bet on upside. Um, I think that's just the, the better choice to make. So yeah, I think I guess I come down to Tierney is not irreplaceable. I think that we could find someone who is more available. Maybe, you know, he, maybe we take a slight downgrade at the, you know, the overall peak quality. But I would you do that if he's going to be available for 35 starts a season instead of 25 starts? I think so. Right. Because you, you think about um, a, a slightly a slight downgrade for 35 matches plus a backup for three versus tyranny for 25 and a backup for 13. Yeah, I no, I, I hear you. I mean, the problem is like, then I could point to Granite Shack and say, well, that's exactly what we have there. A player who's really nice, good, plays every single game, but we think we need better, right? And so you could wind up in a situation where you have a Granite Shack of left backs kind of situation where he seems good, he seems decent, we kind of like him, but we think we need better, and we had better, and we gave him up because he doesn't stay fit. There isn't an easy answer here. Question of like, well, how valuable is left back, right? Like, I don't know. Like to me, that's not the that's yeah. not the position that wins Kieran, you games. Most it, of the like time. it depends on the Paul? season, right? Because mm-hmm. last year, Kieran Tierney he was the whole was, attack. Yeah, <laughs> he was one of our most important players. This year, there's been a lot of change in, in in systems, and then we're asking him to do different things. He's taken a while to adjust. Last couple of games that he was playing, he was very important to us, even if he wasn't the, the starring player. And there's one other aspect, which we haven't even got our center forward yet. You know, if you're looking for a Vlahovic, a Dominic Calvert-Lewin, a guy who can get his head on the ball, um, suddenly Tierney being able to swing in Robertson-like crosses becomes a real factor. Whereas, you know, we basically... We almost start throwing tomatoes at him for, sorry, tomatoes at him for um, swinging in crosses these days, really good crosses because they're pointless. But the point, the crosses aren't pointless. It's what gets on the end of them is pointless. So um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think he's a way better player. Scott, hold on a second. Scott, hold yeah. on. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you know, it's buy, uh, uh, buy low, sell high, but we tend to do it the other way around. You know, we, yeah. Uh, we tend to do it the other way around on players, and he, you know, his stock is pretty low at the moment. Uh, this would be a good time to buy Kieran Tierney's stock if he could stay fit. In terms of his a- abilities and his contribution to this team, he'll be a really good fullback for us if he stays fit, but he won't be if he keeps getting injured. 
Scott podcasting with all the confidence of a man who's on his primary microphone when actually he's on his tertiary microphone after the first two options failed. But I, I appreciate the gusto, uh, Scott, but, but that's, that's not going to work for the crosstalk thing with our microphone situation. But yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, no, I think that's a good point, right? If, if you have a striker that is spending his time around the penalty spot rather than the top of the D, those crosses probably are a lot more valuable. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good point, Paul. I, you're right. I, it's not that I dislike Kieran Tierney. I think Kieran Tierney is a very good player, but I do see the issues with him and I wouldn't be averse to trying to find something else. Let's sure. put it this way. I think Kieran Tierney could start for a team that wins the league, but I think Kieran Tierney on a team that wants to win the league, not being available for 30% of the season would be a problem that they wouldn't tolerate. And you know what's interesting? You know, Scott, you said, is left back really the, that important a position? I have a, a really fascinating insight into this. I think the most important position on your team or positions are the ones where your best players are. So if you ask me, who are the, you know, what's the most important position on Liverpool? It's center back, it's right back, and it's wide forward. Most important position on Manchester City? I think you can make an argument that left back and central midfield between Cancelo and De Bruyne, those are two of them. Um, you know, if you look at, at Chelsea, maybe it's defensive midfielder or had been in previous years. He's having a bit of a down run, but in N'Golo Conte. So to me, the most important positions are where you have your absolute best players and you build your team to plan around that. And if Tierney is one of our best players and that, that remains to be seen, each person's opinion may vary, that makes it even worse that he's not available because you start to build your team around that player. And when they're not there, their their absence is felt even more keenly. You know, I think the way Liverpool defend, they put so much pressure on Virgil van Dijk, but he can do it. When he's not there, they kind of stink, or at least, you know, compared to what they could be. I'm going to switch now to a new question. This one's for me, Leo Toadstoy like that at squash enjoyer asks, why is Elliot so vehemently against defensive football? You idiot. He didn't say that. He just, he just, it was, it was implied. I'm kidding. And would he sacrifice his attachment to a more attacking style for the style and success of Simeone's Atleti over the past decade? No, I wouldn't. And, and here's the thing. You wrote First yourself all, this question. No, I didn't. Leo Toadstoy wrote this question. That's a real person <laughs> with a really funny avatar. Um, so a few things. War and First peace, of all, attack and defense. It's all there. I do wonder what, how if Simeone would have the same amount of love and appreciation in the Premier League as he gets for being in La Liga going up against the duopoly of Barcelona and Real Madrid. I admire what he's done. I struggle to connect with it. And here's what I would say. If you're going to play, and, and the other thing is like, I also think Atleti's defensive style is maybe slightly overstated. I think they can go win games and beat smaller teams up in a way that, you know, we don't we don't see as much in the big Champions League ties and things like that. And they've had some really exciting dynamic attacking players. So like, I'm not saying I wouldn't have taken Simeone necessarily, but I do struggle to connect with defensive football. And there's a few reasons. Firstly, I actually just think over time, teams that are really effective at attack tend to thrive more in a league situation than teams that emphasize defense. I think in cups, because it's a low scoring sport. And when two teams face off, it's basically down to variance. The team with the better defense maybe has the better chance, but I think, over 38 games where there's a premium on three points, you got to go attack. Um, and I know Mourinho's teams were stood in opposition to that, but they had ridiculous, I mean, I think there was ridiculous defense. I think one season they allowed nine goals or something ridiculous. I'm not even kidding. That, that's not the actual number, but it's it may be close to that. Um, 
And like, uh, so, so I think that there's that. And then here's the other point. Every single season, only one team is going to win the league. That's my insight. I hope you enjoyed it. No. Um, the other 19 teams are going to have to find something to be fighting for. Maybe it's to avoid relegation. Maybe it's to get in the top four. Maybe it's the Cups. But in the league, it's one team that wins it and everybody else doesn't. And so there's 38 games to be played. And if they're not fun, if you don't enjoy them, if they're a slog where the only thing you hope is that when the final whistle blows, there's three points, I guess there's a utilitarian appeal to that. But if you're not going to win the league, then the season becomes an absolute slog to me. If you think, yeah, we're around fifth or fourth, and we think we can get there with you know, a bunch of one nils and creating very little and keeping it tight. And I'm look, there are people who probably think that'd be fascinating to watch. That isn't me. So as someone who's watching an Arsenal that hasn't won the league in almost 20 years— I want the 38 games to individually be enjoyable, not just enjoyable when we look at the end of the season and look where we are in the table. And I just don't know that I would individually enjoy those experiences. Paul, I mean, I, does, that, does that make sense? That like, yes, I yeah. get that it's about wins and losses, but th- this isn't like American sport where you make it into the playoffs and anything can happen. One team wins the league and 19 other teams have to find something to enjoy in the season. I'd like to enjoy the 38 games along the way. Yeah. Like, what's the crux of this question? Should we want Diego Simeone at Arsenal? Well, I think the crux is why am I against defensive football? Because okay. if you're asking about Simeone, like, yes, I'd take, you know, getting the Champions League finals and winning the league. At that level, yes. But in terms of that style, yeah. and, you know, that combative style can be kind of exciting. But defensive football, that particularly is, is what I'm focused on. Look, as long as it's not at Arsenal, he'd be fantastic in the Premier League. He's mm. absolutely what football needs. You need that kind of character, yeah. You do. You need, every yeah. Batman movie, the good ones, every Bond movie that was ever any good, it was because of the villain uh, mm. uh, more as much and more than the Batman. Now, I don't want it at my club. It's pernicious. It's unpleasant. It's nasty. But, like, people care. You and the other guys. I mean, look what it brought out of Manchester City. Uh, a side of them that I can't remember seeing. And, like, those guys had to dig deep. It was ugly. Like, this is all part of the experience. Football, at its best, is life. And Diego Simeone uh, gesturing his enormous testicles at the crowd. I mean, what do you want from your football? I want that. Um, He's absolutely fantastic. He's a brilliant manager. Like, I get the comparisons with Mourinho as well. But for me, like, Mourinho never played the game. He wasn't really a football guy. He just knew how to set up a team to let to stop other teams. And he gave kind of a degree of freedom, a simple system to his attackers to do shit. Diego Simeone is infused in every aspect of that pitch, kicking every ball, uh, knows football up, down, across and back. He plays way better football than Mourinho would ever aspire to. Um, I do agree with that. I, do, yeah. I agree with that, yes. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. I'd love him in the Premier League, apart from the fact we'd have to compete with him. But, you know, taking the Arsenal side out of it, um, or him being my manager at our club, I'd absolutely fucking love it. Yeah, and look, th- some people might love Rococo paintings, and some people may love nihilism, right? Like, some people might be saying, Elliot, what are you talking about? Grinding out a one nil is exhilarating. And like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that that's different for me. My point is more that, you have to try to enjoy the the 
you have to atomize the season at some level and enjoy the individual atoms. You have to hopefully enjoy the 38 steps that take you to where you finish at the end of the season. And if you're just focused on where you finish and those 38 steps are not enjoyable, then I think you missed something. Now, yeah. I realize for people but who get to go to the ground, for example... So, Elliot, mm-hmm. isn't there two different questions here? And I'm t- trying to work out which one we're asking. Mm-hmm. If it's your team, uh, I fully I'm 100% with you. But if it's a team in your league, if it's one of the 20 teams, I want Diego Simeone's Atletico well, in my league. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I could say, do you want Tony Pulis in your league? Do you want no. um, um, <laughs> Sean, Dye- Sean Dyche in your league, who just got sacked, Maybe. by the way? Do you want Sam Allardyce in your league? Nope. Um, but to be fair, I think that, that that is a lazy comparison that diminishes the yeah. the subtlety and, and quality of what Simeone does. Uh, if it was as easy as, you know, just and do what Pulis does or just do what um, Burnley, uh, you know, Dyche does, then Pulis would be at a club like Atleti achieving what he, what he Simeone is, and he's not. Oh, no. So... Uh, Scott, I do want to give you a, a chance at this, and then I have to ask you a question about Paul. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think that this is a, a pretty interesting question. So this is actually something that brought up, so something that Grace Robertson uh, wrote on her newsletter um, earlier this week, kind of talking about the the different managers. And one of the things that she brought up was that, you know, we had for a, a moment in the Premier League, uh, both Rafa Benitez and Jose Mourinho probably at their peak playing this same kind of style where it was to neutralize what the other teams wanted to do. And it was boring, but effective. And she also brought up the point now where we have Klopp and Pep who are doing the same kinds of things where they are neutralizing what the other teams want to do, but it's not in the goal or the you know the advancement of defending it's in the advancement of trying to impose themselves to attack and Hmm. to me that just matches a lot more with my aesthetic um so that's kind of where i lean and where i would want to do but i think you guys both brought up a good point though i don't want every manager to be the exact same i don't want every team to be the exact same it's interesting it's nice to have the contrast between the different styles of play. It's interesting to see different teams set up with different ways of trying to neutralize each other, the counters of each of those teams going up against each other and trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. I think that just adds interest to it. I think that was one of the things that actually made um, City versus Atleti an interesting match. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of goals, but you know, it was interesting to see Pep and Simeone going at each other and trying to figure out how to counter what each team wanted to be able to do. So, yeah, I, I don't want my team to necessarily play like that, but I like that there are teams that do it. Um, I think it's best right now that the best teams are not playing that style. I think that is probably something that, you know, you want to be able to see the best players, especially the best attacking players, set up with a platform that gives them a good chance to show what they want to do rather than playing within these incredibly strict limits of you know coaches like Simeone or Rafa Benitez when he was at his best or Jose when he was at his best so yeah I, I, I like both but I, I'd rather have a you know attacking team yeah the no unsung wrong. part mm-hmm. with Diego Simeone is how great a tune he gets out of his players um like how many uh, players has he turned into uh, players that other teams thought were like worldies and went in big to buy um, player after player after player, is, he's 
absolutely exceptional. And I still think we do him a disservice when we mention him with uh, Rafa Benitez, who was a great football coach, and Mourinho, in that Diego Simeone gets the, the pulse going uh, in the games. He Most of the games he plays, no matter who you are uh, w- watching it, in a way that Mourinho, like Mourinho just fucking killed games. How often did he just suck the soul out of it? That's not what Simeone does. It's very that rare. That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. Because, like, the funny thing is, right, I remember big games, you know, at the top of the table clashes when Mourinho was at the top of the table, and they were unwatchable. Yeah. I find that Atleti's game, big games, d- despite the sort of, quote, defensive style, are extremely intense and watchable. It's yeah. like it's like guerrilla warfare. It's it's not dull. No. <laughs> it's no. thrilling. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that. And by the way, you made a point about him building up these players. I mean, to be fair, you could say the same about Arsene Wenger, who, I mean, it seems like every player we sold uh, f- that Arsene turned into someone like really usable and exciting for us was just a complete waste. I mean, Alex Leb, Alex Song, Thomas Vermaelen. I mean, they all went to Barcelona, which is ironic. Um Okay, question for you, Scott, about Paul. This one comes from Michael J. Stranesi. Str- hmm. uh, I don't know, MJ underscore Stranesi. Stranesi. I apologize, Michael. Uh, uh, unreservedly. It. When it comes to Lacazette, who is more stubborn, Arteta or Paz? Who will break first? Um, I think Arteta's going to break first. I, I think the, the, the tea leaves might be that he's not starting. I, you know, you, we read the, the notes today from the, the press conference, and there might be something personal that is keeping him out, but maybe that's... There's been some reports of illness, so I just want to be clear. People get very mad at me when I do the conspiracy theory, so now that I've put that out there, I can lean into the conspiracy theory. Let me just read the quote, okay? He says, quote, Obviously, there are private reasons that I cannot comment on. Obviously, there are private reasons that I cannot comment on. I don't know what the obviously is there. <laughs> I don't know what that means, Scott. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I you see. It, it's maybe he's just kind of fill up words, right? We say mm. we say lots of words all the time, right? And you know, you just kind of fill I, things. I think there's a logic there. If the reasons are private, obviously I cannot comment, and the reasons are private. Yeah. Um, so Scott, keep going though. Yeah, um, so who's, yeah, so who's going to break first? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I think is, yeah, I think that there's a, a good chance that we don't see Lacazette start this weekend. So I think that that's probably going to be the breaking point for um, this. Um, but one of the things I actually did write about is I pull my you know Tim um, card out here. One of the things I did talk about this week was that Arsenal's production from striker it, it hasn't been as bad as kind of what I thought. Um, we were definitely probably the worst of you know the the teams that are chasing top four but i was actually pretty surprised with how we compared with teams like manchester united and west ham um who i thought you know at least on paper um at least in my mind from watching i thought had better strikers um but actually the production has been okay compared to them um at least on par with them so i've kind of been on paul's side a little bit where i think that we've been a little bit harsh on lacazette in that, you know, he, yes, it sucks that he doesn't do the goal thing, which again is important, but he does do a lot of things or did a lot of things to help facilitate other parts of the attack. But I think there are now questions of, has that been figured out? And is it something that we can bet on to continue going forward? So yeah, I'm ready for a change. I think Arteta will do that this weekend. And I don't think Paul is going to stop 
saying that Lacazette is awesome. With great power comes great responsibility, and I have the power to not turn this topic over to Paz, but <laughs> I'm going to demonstrate a lack of responsibility here and give Paz a chance to answer. <laughs> right. I'm going to go at the big topic here. I'm not stubborn. I'm just consistent. <laughs> Fair yeah. You say stubborn, I say consistent. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. Do you have I, any other thoughts you want to share or no? Yeah. I'm not saying oh, Lacazette's okay. playing well. Um, he is the least worst option we have in that we don't really have another striker. Like, who are you offering me here? We want to move Martinelli, who's only just found his feet on the left, where he's playing well and is basically our biggest goal threat, just like City and Liverpool have their biggest goal threats off the wings. And we want to move him. We want to move Smith Rowe, who has never, apart from once, played centre forward and never with any conviction. And uh, Or we want to play Nicolas Pepe, um, who can't uh, earn the manager's trust in connecting the play on the right wing to the center of the pitch. Like, you do any of these things, you have to change the style utterly. He's not going to do it. Uh, I'm not going to... The difference with me is I'm not going to fight that battle of projecting a completely white board with a different manager and lots of different options of styles. I know what we're going to do. We're going to stick with positional play, with the center forward who connects the play. There's only one answer. And for all of those who like look at Lacazette and see a terrible player, we played the best games of football we've seen in years with that guy at center forward. He didn't have to be brilliant. He just needs to be okay. He's not in a good run of form at the moment. We look at the Crystal Palace game in which we were utterly shit and couldn't string two passes together. We look at the Brighton game where they had three centre-backs, five across the midfield. You put Martinelli in the middle of that, he will never see the ball. He will never connect anything. You're not doing yourselves any favours. So, like, I'm not going around saying, I love Lacazette, he's great. Like, get rid of the bomb in the summer. Bring in, a, give me a good option right now. And I'm like, drop the bastard. <laughs> but he is our centre-forward. It works when we work. He was not the problem against, like, I, I get... You want more from your striker. A goal from him could have changed those games. He could have connected the play. But I get all of that. But that was not where the root of our problems was. Crystal Palace was about us not showing up in any regard. Nobody could string a fucking pass together. We haven't pressed in two games. We haven't been front-footed. We haven't played out from the back with any level of confidence. Our midfield is Sambi and Jack is over playing left back. Those are where all the issues are. That's my consistency or what some would say stubbornness i've been talking about mm. toothpaste for forever that's where our issues are get our football back lacazette will go back to being okay i just want to imagine that this is someone's first ever arsenal vision podcast which, in which case <laughs> it was nice having you as a listener and goodbye um and they they hear the sentence coming out of you i've been talking about toothpaste for forever <laughs> And they're like, okay, I officially don't fucking get this podcast at all. Um, all right, well, here's the only thing I would say to that, and I don't want to bog down, so let me just say this and we'll move on. I, I sort of do agree with a lot of the points you make in this debate, um, not just today, but in general. Where I sort of disagree is the, he's the least worst option one, only in that, like, you are presuming that if we did start a game with Martinelli up front or Smith Rowe up front, that it would not look better than 
Lacazette up front. And if you were saying that in yeah, yeah, yeah. But just if we were saying that in like February, where let's say one of those guys was injured, so we would have lost them all together on the wing, to your point, or Lacazette was doing a lot of the link up stuff well so we could tolerate the deficiencies. I would have agreed with you wholeheartedly. I was fine with Lacazette having deficiencies when I think he was doing the link up stuff better. With the Villa game, with the Palace game, with the Brighton game, I think we hit a point where I no longer think the toothpastey stuff <laughs> is good from him, nor is the strikery stuff. And now we have both Smith Rowe and Martinelli available. So now I would take issue with the suggestion that we know for sure Lacazette's the least worst option. Now I think we've reached a point where if you want to start Martinelli up front and Smith Rowe on the left or vice versa, or even in Kedia, the fall off in Lacazette's play has been enough that now I think the trade-off of what we could get from those options is worth the risk of what little we might be losing because I just feel that the position has become, in the last three games specifically, to be clear, a bit of a zero. Um, I think in the last two games, we didn't do enough stuff to find out if, like Lacazette was bad against Brighton, don't get me wrong, but we didn't do enough stuff, We like we didn't play our football. Every player needs something from the rest of the team to start to look, to start to play their football. So for for me, those are two dodgy data points now. Didn't stop him being better, doing better, but that that for me doesn't write him off as a striker for the rest of this season. We have many, many more data points since the big click against Southampton, ironically, the next team we face, where Lacazette was good and we played good football. But you said something I, I want to ask about, actually. Yeah. So you said write, write him off for the rest of the season. That's, you know, to be fair, like, I think that's sort of... um a straw man in the sense that, like, I'm not saying write him off for the rest of the season. I'm you saying not. you you can put him on the bench for the next game. People try something else. Terrible. No, no, I get it. But Paul, what I'm saying is, uh, I'm 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 having a conversation with you, not everyone. Uh, even though it. I do try to do that on Twitter most of the time. Um, what I'm saying is, like, like we can, and yeah. if we believe in a meritocracy, should see if there's another solution right now because we have a player who's out of form. Yep, and. He can come on at 60 minutes. Like, like when, if we were to start a Smith Rowe over a Martinelli, right? Or if we were to start a Pepe over a Saka, that doesn't mean, you know, the world's gone to shit. I mean, that's yeah. just called rotation, right? We can rotate Laka out of the starting 11 and see what that looks like for now. You know? Yeah, I've absolutely no problem with that. If it's working in training, which I can't see for it. Like, I, I don't have any kind of religious... Uh, attachment to Lacazette. You know, he's not he says Chaka on Good for me. Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he's not Chaka for me. I'm not going to die for this guy. Like, he hasn't been good. If we had anybody who's better, um, I'd play them. I've not, I'm just like, saying we don't know. We, we yeah, might. Yeah, we don't know. And now we yeah. should find out, right? Why not find out? Would you be... Well, let's put it this way. Yeah. If we started with Smith Rowe, Martinelli, and Saka as our front three against Southampton, would you be like, we've made a mistake? Or would you be like, all right, let's see, you know? I think I would expect we've made a mistake, but I'm open to okay. it. It would okay. mean to me that we tried it at London Colony and it had been good. I suspect we've tried it at Lon- London Colony and it has not been good. But that's just, that's my bias. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do think, you know, this is also, this goes to issues of like meritocracy and stuff, which is just sort of like, you do want to promote a competitive environment. And I'm sure even the players right now can kind of look and see that Lacazette is missing a little something. And if I were a player, I'd be like, 
give me a shot there, boss. You know, so yep. Scott, I, I want to give you a, a final word here before we move on. And I mean, look, I know we bogged down here a little bit and I said I didn't want to do that. But to be fair, it does feel like like we can't fix the party issue right now or the left back issue so much or the right back issue so much. But like we can change the striker situation. So that's why it feels kind of urgent and important. Yeah, and I think part of the the problem with Lacazette is that he's at the end of some dominoes that have um, also been knocked over. So we've lost two key parts of the the toothpaste part, right? The the toothpaste assembly line. So we are not having the same ability to progress the ball up to him. And that one analogy of the things, has just fallen apart completely. But yeah, <laughs> that, go ahead. That, li- that um, listener we had lost, we we've, <laughs> we just pulled him back in again, and we've lost him again. again. <laughs> go ahead, Scott. Uh, But one of the things that I did notice when I was going through and um, kind of looking back at things is that his ability to receive the ball in dangerous locations has dropped off. So part of that is probably the players that are playing in front of him not being able to find him. Um, And I think also it's part of it is that center backs are now following him to those positions and not kind of respecting um, his ability to potentially go behind him or do anything like that. So I think that's, you know, a thing that's been kind of figured out. So to me, I think, yeah, kind of going to the meritocracy, being able to change what other teams have scouted for all week and planned for, um, you know, just kind of throws a wrench in their planning. And it's like, all right, this is something that we didn't spend all week preparing against, right? So being able to offer a different look for them might be interesting. Um, I think one of the things that we saw at the beginning of the season is that he looked good coming on for, you know, the last 30 minutes of games. He was something different than what other players offered. And that's something that, you know, it takes players a bit of time to adjust to a new style of play. And maybe that could reinvigorate some of the things that he's able to do. Um, and then I think there's also just that he he doesn't look like a 90-minute player still right now. Like, I don't know if he's he's really been that his entire career. But it's like, we get to the end of games and he looks like he's completely out of it. So it's like, maybe that would help get more out of him, be able to, you know, maybe reduce some of his jadedness that he's going on. So I think there's, there's, you're right. There's not a lot of great options, but I think there are things that we can do on the margins to at least change the look and problems that we are forcing other teams to try to solve. Yeah. All right. Well, I got a few more questions I want to get to definitely, but listen, Normally, I'd try to do some witty intro to the Manscaped promo. I try to do a segue. I try to make my own thing of it. There's this copy that they give me that I can read, but my attitude is you want to know my thoughts on personal grooming. That's why you're here, he says to that listener who has abandoned us ages ago. Um, I'm going to just read this to you. My attitude is like, the Sistine Chapel, like, would I take crayons to the Sistine Chapel and try to improve it? No, I wouldn't. I'm not going to try to improve this ad read. I want you to hear this. The champions of grooming are here to save your balls. Let's be real. We all know Manscaped is the world champion of below-the-waist grooming. The Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 will have you feeling sleeker than Ronaldo with his shirt off. He is not in the Champions League. Haha, ha, LOL. Just make sure you are keeping your Man City under control. You wouldn't want to get yourself in scoring position just to have your Lionel Messi balls blow it for you harder than PSG in a second leg. Come get the best ball products your money can buy They're out too. With promo code ArsenalVision at Manscaped.com for 20% off and free delivery on your order. I mean, I don't know which part of that is the best. Keeping your Man City under control. I don't know. I don't know, man. Whoever writes these, like, I, I need to meet them because I, I need, like, an, an edu- education. 
But putting all the silliness aside, the, the Lawnmower 4.0 is genuinely the best purpose-built trimmer you will ever find. It is a ceramic blade, skin-safe technology. It's designed to work on uneven or loose skin so that it, you know you shave the hair and not the skin. Um, look, I go into the the shower, you know, at least once a month, and I look and like there's my lawnmower sitting there. Haven't charged it, haven't put it in the little charger thing. Just always works, and it works in the shower, so it's great. What I used to do is go in the shower and see this like old razor. Let's be honest, it was my wife's razor. And I'm like, yeah, I'll borrow that to do the job. And then like Edward Scissorhand situation ensues, misery ensues. Don't do that, especially with spring coming up. You're going to wear these short shorts and maybe you're sitting on a bench and someone can see your area poking out of the short shorts and like you just don't want it to be embarrassing. You know, I mean, not that it wouldn't be embarrassing to begin with. Skin safe technology, long battery life, wet dry use, induction charging. It's all the best there is. It's Lawnmower 4.0. Get it now at manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Save 20%, get free shipping. When you go to manscaped.com and use promo code Arsenal Vision, so you'll get control of your Man City. And God knows Arsenal need to get control of Man City at some point too. So once you've done that, then you need to hire the best talent for your company. And there's only one company that can do that for you, and it's Indeed. If you're not using Indeed to find talent right now, basically your company stinks. You have the worst company. You you have a company that, you, you are Manchester United. You have all these resources and you're blowing it. You blew it. Use Indeed. Because Indeed lets you, what does it let you do? You all know this by now. Indeed lets you attract, interview, and hire all in one place. The only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, time is money. To find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that helps you do it all. Partners with you every step of the process, instant match, assessments, virtual interviews, With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates. With resumes on Indeed that match your job description, you invite them to apply. So they're like, oh, they're asking me to apply. That's great. Get some more excited about your job, and you only pay for the ones that meet your must-have requirements. According to Talent Nest, they they, they deliver four-time more hires than all other job sites combined. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 sponsored job credit. Before April 30th, Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Paul, is that enough of that? Indeed. Do you have Lionel Messi balls? <laughs> what is wrong with you people? I just read it. I just It's the Sistine Chapel of ad copy. I'm not bringing my own crayons to it. Here we go. Okay. Uh, um, Max at Max underscore Zaman asks, Scott, imagine the worst happens. Should ask that to me. I can always do that. And we miss out on Europe. Which of our players are you scared would get tempted away for Champions League football, if any? Ooh, that's a, a tough question. Um, I, I think I would probably worry most. <sighs> hmm. I think that we have at least one more season of grace with some of the people that are coming through the academy, right? So I think that Saka is probably not going to be tempted away. I think that there was enough, hopefully, this season to show him that you know we're we're taking steps forward and that he wouldn't. But I I, I think that he would probably be the number one target for other teams, right? We've heard lots of coaches have you know good things to say after we've played him. And I saw he's probably the number one target followed by Martinelli for people if they were going to try to pry someone away from us. So I think that would be my number one and number two 
for people that I would worry about probably being tempted away if we were out of Europe. Yeah, I don't know that I'm worried about players getting tempted away just yet, but maybe I'm worried about players not resigning. Like, would Saka be like, I'm going to take another season and have a look? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably the more valid concern. Because I think that we have another year of grace before people are really antsy pushing for a move away. But yeah, they might hold off on, you know, or at least change the demands, right? To, to kind of do stuff. So I think if we had Europe, we'd be in a, a better position to, you know, keep everybody a little bit happier. Yeah. All right, Paul. Luke at Petit's Ponytail 1 asks, if we were to get a good offer for Gabriel... And I think there were Barcelona rumors floating around. Isn't he the perfect player to sell? Ready-made replacement already at the club, parentheses Saliba, and good money to invest, question mark. Um, it's hard to get a good center back. Um, People have massively over-indexed him having a couple bad games after the international break, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. He's been a rock. I've just seen a lot of people that are like, Gabriel stinks, we should get rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is what is going on? I think I have a massive problem with both these questions. No offense meant to the people. Just like it's not going to happen. We're not selling anybody next year. Um, this I'm with Scott. We have a year or two here of grace that as long as we're heading in the, the we're making progress, not not the fans definition of progress, but within the team, they have a sense of if they're building something and they think they are. Um Nobody's going anywhere next year. Now, if we have a terrible year next year, okay, uh, you, you know, situations will be reevaluated. So I just find it really hard to get my head around. Would I sell Gabrielle for ridiculous money? Um, sure, I'd sell almost anybody for ridiculous money, but I wouldn't just sell them for fair money uh, on the basis that we could replace them. And the Saliba thing, you know, you throw that one, that's a whole other topic. I don't think Saliba's coming to our club. I don't think he'll ever play. It'd be interesting if he plays for us even in preseason. I suspect that may not happen. But um, I agree with you, by the way. I, I've said this from the start, and I'm ready to be proven wrong because it happened so often. I don't think we'll ever see him pull on an Arsenal shirt. No. Yeah, there's something something extra there. And I'm sorry if it, it, it upsets people who have their heart set on it and like it upsets me but i think it's the case yeah i don't <laughs> and like i don't understand it i'm not saying it's okay or anything. like i don't know what happened or has happened but it, like talking about a chilly room when you walk into that one any conversation to arsenal about salib it's always like he's doing good we'll evaluate in the summer we're pleased for him <laughs> it's uh i don't know it, it's like uh, you're taking care of laboratory rats. Don't get too close to them. You know how it ends. So, Yeah. Um, all right. So let me ask you this one, Paul. Um, well, I don't want to ask you that one because it's a little similar. Let me ask you a different one. This one comes from Matt in the Curve at not underscore Kenna. What's your take on shifting expectations as the season goes? Preseason, I think we all hope for Europa, but as of a few weeks ago, we were projected favorites for uh, Champions League. How do you grapple with pre- and in-season expectations being different and how good you judge this team to be? Yeah. Uh, so the, how good I judge this team to be has not changed really an iota. Um, it's the same team. They're good. Give them enough players of the requisite level that we have recently lost. Um, we'll be playing the good football and we'll keep building. So 
like I try and st- I don't like the whole five three eight um, prediction stuff. Um, I went on about on numerous occasions. Like it only works looking backwards. Looking forward, you don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to get the injuries, or is our rival going to get the injuries? Uh, will the will our rival get a new manager and suddenly kick into a level of play and style that improves them? Guess what? They did and have signings new, in and signings in January. And signings in Jan- like you, looking forward based on. Uh, looking back, that's that's a dodgy proposition. So, like, I'm yeah. bummed that we went from from me feeling we're well on track to get this top four thing to then the other guys kicking in while we lost key players. But I also think it's okay if we're in the Europa. We're not going to fall out of the European places. We'll get top five or six, and we'll get Europa League, and that's where I had hoped and expected we might be this year and I'll live with it. And like, I'll just let go of the other thing. It was, it was great while it was the thing, but when circumstances change, you have to pivot with it. And like, we've got to look medium long-term and not like we can't put all of this catastrophizing on the team. Every time things turn down, I mean, it impacts us. It impacts our relationship with the team, it will have like it's going to be a lot easier for the team to turn things around as they have in the past multiple times. Um, if the more we can get behind them, that's all I would say. So, yeah, and I would say this guy, like I, I people know how I've been down on Arteta at times during his reign. I don't think the run from December to April was a mirage. I think that was really good football played by players who are becoming really good in a system that looks like it works. Is it fragile? Yes. Is it more fragile than I'd like? Yes. Is that fragility down to the tactics not being good enough or the players not being good enough? Or is it down to injuries? Is it down to opposition? Like, that's all open for debate. Um, I think the problem with talking about, like, expectations preseason and in-season is, like, my expectations were that we finished sixth or seventh. So should I be happy if we finish sixth? Well, one of the reasons my expectations were sixth or seventh is I didn't have very high hopes for this team because I wasn't sure I was sold on the manager or the players. So being like, well, they did what you expected. Well, if I expected them to be bad and they do that, I'm not going to be happy about it, right? So I was shown a reality where actually these players are pretty good and the system works. And that has made me update my priors so that now if we don't get to where I thought we could get to, it will be disappointment. But if it's due to injuries that just prevent us from continuing on with that developmental track. I can live with that. Goon Squad asks, uh, if we end up sixth, do you consider this season a success? In my opinion, below fifth is failure. And, you know, I kind of see it both ways, Scott. So which way do you see it? Well, I think part of it is aiming for necessarily a position can, I think, feel like the the wrong type of way to measure things, right? Because I think that, to me, I was more concerned about performances and do we have a team that is performing at a level that would point to that we're doing better than last year, right? I wanted to have a team that was performing at a minimum of a top six level that looked like they were taking a step forward to being able to challenge for top four. 
So that is kind of where I did it. So I didn't necessarily say that, oh, I wanted to finish sixth or better. I wanted the team's performances to be at a minimum of a team that would be typical of sixth and looked to be challenging, be able to take that next step, right? So, you know, if we... And I think we are basically at that level, right? I think that we've seen you know, some poor performances at the start of the season, some really good performances, and now we've kind of kind of come in the middle where we're performing right around like a team that's borderline top four. I think that if we were able to kind of continue that for the rest of the season, that would be a success um, based on my initial performances from the start of the year. And this was something that I was thinking about because this was a, a statement that was on the statements Arsenal or our, you know, our squad pod. Um, we can't you know, go up a whole podcast without mentioning that we listened to them as well. Mission um, and, um, and Tim was like, no, I think that, you know, he brought up Everton this season, right? That, you know, their fans, if they are, you know, avoid relegation, you know, in the last second of the season, they're going to celebrate that. But it's like, I don't think that they're going to look back and say, yeah, we avoided relegation. We're happy, but this was a success. No, like it's like then when you get a last gasp winner um, against a team that you expect to beat, um, you, you're incredibly happy right, to get that last gasp winner. That's a thrilling moment. But then, you know, in cold analysis, that's kind of a disappointment, right? You wanted three points. You expected three points. Yeah, it was awesome to not lose. It was, you know, awesome to get that last, you know, minute goal kind of thing, right? We think back to that Crystal Palace match at the beginning of the season, right? That was thrilling, right? You were there. You 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 know, you always bring it up. But, you know, you kind of could look back. It's like, no, we, we wanted three points from that match. And that's a little bit of a disappointment. So there are things that you can be happy with. But I think if you are to be cold and unfeeling, you know, I think it is looking back. All right, what were the, the measures that we wanted at the start of the season? Did we accomplish them um, along the way? Yeah, you might adjust things and, you know, the things change over the course of the year and you can kind of you know, put a finger on, oh yeah, we had an injury crisis. So maybe we can kind of de-weight these things or we brought in players in January. And so that kind of upped our expectations. So, but yeah, I think that ultimately, I think you should still kind of go back to what you had as your baseline at the start of the year when you're trying to evaluate. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't take the actual circumstances into consideration, then there's absolutely no there's no way to anchor your expectations or your conclusions. I mean, Liverpool fans, if they ju- don't want to hear excuses, they could have just looked at last season and been like, we're in decline, rebuild the squad, get rid of Klopp, start over, because we barely made top four. But if you look at it and say we had a center-back crisis that caused our defense to crater, and as a result of the cratering defense, you know, and our attack running cold against XG for a while, we went through a really down period, but did well to recover, get top four, and stay close, and now... Look at them. They might win a title. They might win the Champions League. Like, if you can't, nobody likes excuses. And yeah, the Shaq at left back thing is frustrating. And sticking with Lacazette is frustrating. But like, if you can't look at losing Tomiyasu, Party, Tierney, and say, ultimately, that may have been too much for a fragile, a fragile system that was starting to really grow into something special to sustain, that's fair if you don't want to hear those excuses. Don't let me, don't let me stand in the way of that. But like, you may start to reach bad conclusions. You know, and and I think that's that's just the issue. You, you you have every right to be frustrated at the losses, every right to mourn the declining top four prospects and feel sad about them and be disappointed. But if when you it comes to analyzing the trajectory of the team, what you have to try to do is look at the run we were on when we were good and say, do I believe that that run in that system 
with the core of the players we have suggests to me that the club is in the right, that, that the team is moving in the right direction and we can be successful if we strengthen a little in the summer and avoid some bad luck with injuries. And I think I lean towards the answer to that being yes. So, you know, that's, um, that, that's where I'm at with that. Paul, this is an interesting one. Jack Porter at Chunder underscore Jack asks, has the lack of Europe this season been a benefit or a detriment to our league form? I was happy we didn't qualify for the Conference League, but now think it may have been useful to keep squad players match fit for when we need them and give experience to some of our academy kids. I don't know about Conference League because I just think that quality is so low as to be probably worth less than like a training game, but Europa League certainly. So where are you in terms of potentially rethinking our the absence of those extra games this season? Uh, there's pluses and minuses. Um, look how oh, thin our shitty answer. Yeah, Pick yeah, a strong no. position. Just yeah, but, give me that. Bring the fire. <laughs> look, the obvious benefit was we had enough of our players together, uh, able to work on a kind of a, re- a weekly rhythm without being dragged all over the place, that we could make the adjustment in that Southampton game when we suddenly developed and produced our football and we could stick with it and we could play it and we did not lose players due to injury and overplaying them. And here we are right now, we've suddenly started losing a couple more players. We didn't have the squad to play in Europe. So I think it would have been an absolute massacre if we'd done both competitions um, till deep in the season. Um, Like we don't have enough players for the Premier League at the moment. So it would have got ugly. There are advantages to of it, and that's obvious, right? And I needn't expound on those. Uh, yeah, I mean, like like Sam, Samby might be further along in his development would be a, a great for example. For sure. Yeah. But what, what you know, great Samby's further along. If we've lost two or three other key players at key points, not just now, but like during this run, we might never have seen the football and we mightn't have had that consistent run and that belief that the squad will have that we as supporters need to regain and probably will once we see a couple of good performances in a re- in a row here. And so, no, I don't think it would have been worth it. And what not being in uh, Europe allowed us to do was uh, to empty the squad. Like we needed to do the spring cleaning. We needed to get all of these players out in January. And that's the other upside of not being in Europe. It allowed us to move those players out and on so that we can move up. Like we've hit the reset button. We got rid of everybody, basically. Um, You know, Lacazette will leave in the summer and give us another slot, another opportunity. We're basically there uh, with, with a restart, a refresh, and build from there. And that's, you know, that's a big part of not having to worry about Europe this year. We were able to do the full reset and we build from here. And so that needs to be uh, assessed in a year or two when we hopefully see all of the benefits of hitting the reset button. Mm. Uh, Scott, um, this is a fun one. Unless, do do you have any strong takes on that? No, I, I mean I think that's about right. It's a, Europe's a, a double-edged sword, so yeah, there's there's pluses, minuses. You know, I don't know. I think it's about right. The thing I would say just quickly on that is that like some people, and, and I know Clive feels this way a little bit, are like, you know, we didn't use the period we had when everyone was fit to keep the peripheral players, you know, in shape and ready and fi- but like. 
The funny thing is, if you look at teams that have leveraged not having Europe to good effect, usually what you're meant to do is shrink the squad down, use a core group of players who you really believe in and can get the job done, and go achieve something with that core group, especially when you're in an early stage of rebuilding a stronger squad. And like, we tried to do that, and we did that, and it was working, and we were 73% or whatever the hell it was to top four, if you put any stock in that shit. And then we lost two really critical players. Um, and like, most teams don't recover from losing two or three really critical players, even the good teams, even the deep teams, and we're not a deep team. So I, I have sympathy for the idea that we did it kind of right, and we tried to leverage that advantage the way you're supposed to, shrink the squad, use the core best players, succeed with them. We couldn't stay fit, and it's just unfortunate. Um, Scott, why I love the girl at why I love the girl one, because I guess he couldn't get girl. Um, and I do want to know why he loves the girl, by the way. We can come back to that later. If Arteta chooses Shaka at left back and Lacazette up top against Southampton, could you understand it? Could you support it? Or would that be a red line he's two-footed over, Scott? <laughs> um, no, I could definitely understand it, right? I mean, I think this is... Could you support it, though? <laughs> could I support it? I think so, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, we're, we're at the situation where every decision that we're making comes with trade-offs, right? So it's what positions are we trying to get the most out of and... I don't know. I, I don't. I don't envy trying to make that choice. I, I lean towards. I thought that keeping our midfield was, you know, strengthened at the most was probably the biggest one. Um, I thought the the drop off from, you know, adding Lakanga and Smith Rowe was a bigger drop off from going Jaka party than it is, you know, Nuno to Tierney. Right. I thought that was the bigger drop off, and I thought that was something that was going to hurt the team more um, Arteta disagreed and, you know, he's, he's around them more and he sees them train and do those things. So you kind of got to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt on those kinds of things. So I don't think there's a lot of good answers to these questions. Everything is going to come with, uh, we're, we're weakening another position to try to cover for something. And I think that's part of coming with a smaller squad right now. Right. And, you know, we, we gambled on that. Um, we thought maybe we didn't have Europe, so we could get by with a smaller squad. And we really went small, um, especially after January, thinking that you know we were going to be close to one game a week territory, and we'd be able to do it. And it almost worked, except for we got hit in two hard situations or hit two hard positions that we didn't have adequate cover for. And that has you know come with the same time as our striker going through a a cold run of form. So now we have three positions that we have question marks around. And I don't think there's a good, there's not an obvious solution, right? So I don't think that whatever Arteta does is obviously wrong. And I'm going to be mad at him. And I'm thinking, Oh, this, this guy's an idiot. I I think he's trying to pick the least worst option and try to make the tactics work to make it go around. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, this one is um, for, for me, I'm going to, well, it's not for me, but I'm going to take it. Amir at AFC Amir 11 asks, how will Alex Lacazette's time be remembered at Arsenal? How would you rate him as a signing? As a signing, I would rate him as an utter, complete, total disaster. The exact (laughs) exemplar of what you try to avoid in the market. How will he be remembered? I hope, is as a good servant who had some good times and, you know, maybe finished his career fading, but helped us play some of our best football in years when when it was going well. I hope he'll be remembered as a hard worker who was a good teammate, who didn't throw a strop when his you know best buddy at the club was frozen out and ultimately had to leave. I hope he's remembered well. As far as a signing, I think it's as close to the worst thing you can do as possible. 
And now I will explain that ridiculous take. What you don't want to do in the market is spend big at a critical position on a guy you're pretty sure isn't the one you want. He is the great example for me of giving up, throwing our hands in the air and being like, well, we needed a striker. I am convinced Wenger had chances to buy him in prior windows. We'd been linked with him. He resisted. He didn't want him. We looked at some really big, exciting name strikers when we knew we probably needed a 1A ahead of Giroud's 1B. And we didn't do it, and we didn't do it. There was the Higuain stuff. There was the Luis Suarez stuff. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I think he threw his hands up and said, fine, I'll spend $50 million on Lacazette. And that one move, apart from selling moves, was a disaster. Because look at all of the repercussions. Arsene Wenger was so not convinced by what he had bought in the summer that the very next window, he spends another $60 million on a different striker, Aubameyang. There is no world where $110 million on strikers in consecutive windows was the right squad building move. And it meant that other positions languished and didn't get addressed correctly. It meant that we wound up holding on to players we probably should have sold because we hadn't bought their backups. Ramsey leaves for free. Ozil gets a contract. Does the Ozil contract have to do with the Aubameyang signing? Alex, uh, um, um, Alexis Sanchez, that's the guy. I remember him well. Um, he goes in the Mkhitaryan swap instead of being sold the summer before. And just a, a period where we made a lot of mistakes, but I think the original sin looks like that Lacazette buy, where we spent big on a critical position that was the player that I'm convinced the manager wasn't sure was the one he wanted. And that's the thing you can't do. You can't, and it's what we didn't do in January, and I respect the club for not doing it. You can't just go buy whoever's available. You can't just go say, I needed a striker. I can't find the fit I want, so fine, we'll do Lacazette. Because then you wind up saying, ah, now Aubameyang's available, I'll go get him too. And that doesn't work. And you spend three seasons trying to play Laka up front and Oba on the left because you've got both of them. We're not sure which one to use. It, it just wasn't a good strategy. And so, Paul, I'm curious. Look, like I said, I hope he remembered well. I think he's been a great servant to the best that he can. He's had some good times. He's given us some good football. And he's been a, you know, a model professional. But from a signing standpoint, do you sort of see where I'm coming from in terms of just going and getting what's available at a big price to solve a need if it's not what you really want winds up becoming a, a hair shirt, winds up becoming a, a, a challenge to your whole squad building structure rather than actually solving the problem, the expedient move. And I'm glad we didn't do it in January, frankly. Yeah, uh, rather rather frustratingly for me, I fully endorse your position. I might <laughs> – <laughs> I, might, I might dial it back from an 11 to like a, a 9 on the yeah, volume. Fair enough, too. <laughs> fair enough. I'm being a little facetious with the utter complete disaster, but you see my point, like structurally, tactically, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, he's kind of an in-betweeny player. He's almost a top striker, at least he was at one point. He's mm -hmm. almost what we wanted. Um, the, He's a great, look, he's a great guy. I love him. I hope it ends up well for him and and for us, but also like just straight up for him. I hope the season plays out a, f from his own standpoint. He ends on a reasonable high and we get a good position in uh, in the final table and he goes off into the sunset because um, like he has been a, a steadiness in these, uh, these shaky waters. He does have a certain uh, calm that he brings with him. Uh, a little too calm for some people. Um, and, like, that's not all the reasons we bought him, but he's been really, really good at the club and for the club. But, yeah, he's he was a missed opportunity. 
uh, by getting him. And what the club mm. needed was an out-and-out winner, and we should have pushed out the boat and got the right striker we needed and spent more money and whatever and just make sure you get the right guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, what but your takes basically yeah, spot on. I mean, th- think about it. whatever you think of, of Laka, but what if we could have gotten Oba that summer instead yep. and bought a really elite midfielder for the money we spent on Laka? And then we could sell Ramsey and have the 60 million that was on offer for him to go buy, you know, to add something else. And then you don't feel as committed to Ozil, so you can part with him if you have to. And like, you can just see the, the cascading implications of going with your compromise solution at striker at a high cost and then having to immediately work to supplement that and fix that in the next window. I, I think I think that's I think right. it's an un, you and know, if you get Lacazette, like, um, you need to have a partner for him. Like he really does need another striker alongside him. So that's a huge investment in terms of style, in terms of money. Um but it was always the case that Laka's physicality, his aerobic capacity, like it was well known uh that I mean, maybe you decide he's not a problem, but it it wouldn't be an asset. You don't look at that guy and say, that guy's going to run all... Like, he's never done it. He's never tore, uh, tore all... He's actually doing great for us. Like, uh, compared to expectations... <laughs> from, <laughs> like, the guy is flogging his good. He's actually, you know, okay, he paces himself a little bit, but he is... A, I disagree with the people who say he fought, fades towards the end of the game. Um, I just think we pay a bit more attention to what he's doing towards the end of the game. I think he's pretty well, consistent these days in terms of output. You're just not going to get actually. When- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you could tell him you're playing 50, 60 minutes. Give us your full intensity. I'm not sure the line goes much higher than it's going, right. but, uh, but, but this, yeah, yeah, but this is the point, right? Like, like this is why I am, okay with what the club did or didn't do in January. Yeah. Because ultimately, throwing your hands up and buying Lacazette meant we had to buy Oba and we covered all the repercussions there. But like, let's just get a Willian to, to you know, add some depth and, and seniority in the forward line. Let's just, you know, go for a loan for this guy or pick up that guy. And like, in almost every case where we did one of those kind of moves, a, a Ceballos loan, you know, papers over the cracks in midfield until we know how to solve it. Like, if it didn't, if those moves didn't actively hurt us, they delayed the steps we had to take or they actively hurt us. So with that, Scott, I'll ask you a question that builds on this. And this one's from 1.76 left backs needed at 1.76 acres. Going back to January, with hindsight, is there a player who is realistically available to buy or loan whom we should have made a bigger play for? Um, You know, maybe in high, I mean, to me, the, the, the hardest question, and I think we had talked about this at, you know, back in January was that, it didn't seem like that we were fully ready to kind of think about the midfield. Cause I think that was one of the things that it did seem like it was going to be an issue, especially at the very beginning of the January transfer window. Um, you know, we can kind of say in hindsight now that with party out, you know, maybe we do need another midfielder, but I don't think that's, you know, the absolute, you know, worst things like, right. I mean, it's that we lost both our midfield and our left back at the same time that has really hurt that gap because I think if we had just lost party, we could have, you know, slotted Jacka back there and it would have been just fine. Or we could have put Sambi and then we'd still have Jacka there and that probably wouldn't be as big of a thing. So I think that there was potentially a midfield loan that could have been there. You know, there was the, the Artur um, rumors that that one could have been there. Um, Bentecourt, you know, who ended up going to Spurs, probably Arsenal, if they wanted to, probably could have, you know, put themselves in that mix kind of a thing. 
And then if you kind of look at the forward stuff, I think we were really in on Vlajovic. And I think that that was something that he had been person that we identified as someone worth going for. But I think that we did kind of learn from some of our mistakes about not settling for something that's just going to paper the cracks, right? I think we wanted someone that fit what we wanted to do. Um, we, I think we were, would have been willing to spend what it took to get Vlajevic. I don't think we would have spent what it would have taken to get um, Izak. Um, I think he would have been another person that, you know, I think the team was seriously considering. And I think I'm okay with it. I mean, I would have loved to have seen maybe a loan, but I don't think that it would have been something that made or break. I don't think there was a loan available that would have really, I guess, moved the needle right there would have been someone that would have been a player right it would have been you know it would have been a somebody else it would have been a danny suarez it would have been you know a kim kalstrom you know a guy that kind of just made up numbers but not someone that you're bringing in to really make an impact so i I don't know you know even with hindsight that i would have really changed too much about the january transfer window yeah well here's the problem Let's say you're like, oh, if you know, if we had brought some midfielder in, then when Party got injured, we wouldn't have been as vulnerable. Well, really, what you're saying is, Samby was a bad buy then, because Samby should be the next in line to come in. That that's the guy you bought to be the next in line there. And if you say, oh, you know, we should have bought, bought a left back. I mean, no one would, was thinking that, so forget that. You could say we should have brought in a striker, but to be fair, like that is the single hardest position to just paper over the cracks. There aren't just really good strikers who are just out there waiting to be acquired for six months, so you have to get that one right. I would not have paid $70 million to get a striker that we don't think is the future at the position. That's how you destroy the project. I think, you know, look, it really does, and I hate to bring it up. No one wants to hear it. No one wants to talk about it. This team is better if we have Aubameyang than not having him. And that's not because I think Aubameyang was playing well for us. He wasn't. It's not because I even think he's great. The idea that we're better without an Aubameyang than with him doesn't make sense to me. It's an extra body that plays a position that's a problem at a level that's probably a little higher than the guy currently playing it. So if Aubameyang was still, you know, um, engaged and interested and fired up and wanting to play for us, yes. Now, here's the problem, though. There are some people that would like to stick the boot into Arteta and say, yeah, if he hadn't gone to war with Aubameyang, then we'd be in a better position. Except we don't know. We don't know if there's any scenario where Aubameyang would have wanted to stay in the team and played hard and tried his best and been, you know, committed or would his presence have just totally disrupted the team entirely? We wouldn't have even had our good run. We just don't know. There's too many details about that relationship and situation. We don't know, but yeah, like the funny thing is everyone says we're down three starters right now. Of course we're struggling. Technically we're down four starters going into this season. Aubameyang was our starting striker and we lost him in a scenario, in a, in a circumstance we would not have predicted, expected, or wanted. So, we, you know, and that's not me saying what we did was right or wrong. I'm, I'm going to abstain from an opinion on stuff that I just, I have no ability to analyze effectively. But we are down four starters, and Stryker is one of them. You know, so that's just the unfortunate reality. Scott, I'll stay with you for this one for a second, um, and then I will kick it over to Paul, but he's sort of opined on this already. Um, so this comes from Gotham 7, and I just want to make clear that the framing of the question comes from Gotham 7, not from me. Should we be concerned about the number of players that are just considered unusable now because Arteta does not trust them? Both Nuno and Pepe are talented players who have had big impacts on this team in previous games. Now when we need players in their positions, they are just warming the bench. Again, the framing of whether he doesn't trust them or they're unusable is his, but I'm curious if that's an issue, and I'll build on that by saying 
Skedadler 101 asks, given that he was hooked twice at halftime and isn't being used when KT is injured, would you say that Nuno Tavares is a failed transfer? So you can answer some, both, or all of that in, in the way that you see fit. Okay, so yeah, I, I think I have some some opinions on this. And um, the Good. first part- That will help. The, the, <laughs> the un, or, yeah, the people that I think are unusable, I think, I think that is true. I think there are players that Arteta doesn't trust um, enough um, to consistently perform. Um, and I think this kind of goes to some of the things that, that Clive has talked about too, where it's possible that we could have maybe done a few things slightly different um, when we were rolling well. Um, I think that would have been, I think there's certainly opportunities where, you know, we could have made a change at 60 minutes and given people a bit of a rest and said, Hey, you got 30 minutes, Sammy, you got 30 minutes, Pepe. Um, let's, let's give you a little bit more time instead of, you know, you coming on for the last seven minutes of the game kind of a thing, or some of those moves that we did to try to just keep people engaged in the squad, um, take a few more minutes off of some of the players that we had, but that's also still hard because even when we were playing well, there weren't, there was still a lot of one goal margins where, yeah, we were performing really well. We were folding control. We were doing those kinds of things, but we still didn't have the same, you know, two to three goal lead where, you know, you could bring on a player that you just want to say, Hey, go show me something. Right. So it, it wasn't the, the perfect situation, but I think there might have been chances to, bring on players and keep more players engaged just in case kind of a thing happened. So yeah, I think you could look back and say, yeah, we probably could have handled some of these players better, but I think there are just times where I think Arteta doesn't trust these players and he has his guys. And I think that's kind of a stick to beat him with, but you know, when things were going well, I didn't hear a lot of complaints about it. Um, now that, you know, the there's more questions about the performances it's a, an easier one to bring up. And I think you got to be a little bit more consistent if that's something that you're going to complain about. And I, I don't know if I was as loud as I should have been earlier when things were going well. Yeah. I think the question though is like, cause I'm not as sympathetic to the idea that you need to keep these players warm and use them. Like, no, I'm fine with shrinking the squad. The issue becomes like the reluctance to use them when like it really, there's yeah. no other option. You still won't use them. You know what I mean? Like Paul, that that's the point, right? I, I think for a team that is struggling to create devastation and attack, you know, the unwillingness to look at Pepe coming in as a, a potential starter, um, you know, for a team that obviously needs midfield stability and control in the absence of party, the unwillingness to go back to Nuno Tavares, like, I don't care if they were used or not used when we, things were going well. I'm fine with shrinking the squad. I do think there's some stubbornness creeping in when things aren't going well and that this is a manager who does you know, have players you trust. And look, when we say this is a manager who, that is true of literally every manager. Um, you know, they have players that they trust more than others. But how, how do you feel about that question? We can kind of wrap up here. But like, and the question, because I know you kind of think it's over for Nuno, and I've heard other people say that. I'm not as convinced, but I, I mean, I'm also fine, by the way, when you throw the dart at a young, inexperienced player on a low fee and big physical talent, to go be a backup. Like you don't need that to hit. If it doesn't hit, you go again. Fine. But like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced that one's dead, but certainly the, the unwillingness to use him and the willingness to move your only remaining experienced central midfielder out to left back hints at it. And I know you feel that way strongly. Yeah. Look, I would absolutely love Nuno to be a success. And occasionally I would love to be wrong. Uh, I'd love to be wrong on Nuno. I would, it would be, he would be an absolutely fantastic player to be good at Arsenal 
if he can get there, uh, given his his talents and his skills. Um, regarding the Arteta question, I have a lot of sympathy for his side of things. Uh, people say he's stubborn. I say he's consistent. Um, little joke there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's you. You're, you're, that's you. I, I get it. You're, it was self-referential. I didn't think it was worth a, a, a charity laugh. No, There's no. your charity laugh. Well, Please continue. it needed a charity laugh. <laughs> it probably In the end, all questions are about me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> look, it, it, it's really important. In the medium long term, Arteta's clear principles, standards, consistency, what he's telling the team, what he's asking of the team will pay off. In the short term, you're like, well, why don't we play a guy because we have him and he's better than the guy that that uh, we don't want playing, but the guy we don't want playing fits the system. And there's a, a clear line of thought. There's a, a process that we're moving along and that's the way it is and you know he's going to hold players to a certain standard and the in the end that pays off cuz everybody it, it you got to bleed early on but what you got going forward is people who are all fully bought in and it'll pay off and yeah you can nitpick it and say why this why that and he'll make mistakes but every manager makes mistakes but a, most of the managers we look up to have strong views on who's a player that will fit their system and strong views on players who won't and best to make those decisions early and go what you got. We have enough players. We just don't have enough players of the res- requisite fit and and level. And we've got to work through that right now. We can't be changing styles and approaches and flipping and flopping and Players know what's expected of them. Nuno knows what's expected of him. It's just a question of can he deliver it. Um, Martinelli knew was what was of expected of him, and he had to work hard on his game, and he did, and it played it paid off for us. And he really looks good, and he really fits in to the system, and that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. Final thoughts on that, Scott. No, I don't think I have. <laughs> My wife comes in and is talking here. Um, no, no, I think does she have any final thoughts on Lacazette's role? <laughs> she says she has lots of thoughts, she said, okay, but good. she she leaves the room. Um, mm. No, I don't think I have any final thoughts. I think that it's, we're kind of, I think everybody's kind of said their piece about it. It is just, it is what it is. And it's, it's just going to be what it has to be at the end of the year. This is, yeah. this is it, next eight games and there's nothing we can do to change it kind of right now. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so obvious and it's so cliche, but like, it's another cup final tomorrow, but like the crazy thing is if we go and batter Southampton, and I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. You know, it's team, we are a team with some flagging confidence. They are a bit too, to be fair. But if we go and do that and, you know, get an unexpected result to go our way somewhere else, like some of the hair pulling and hand wringing that happened over the last two weeks is going to feel silly. And by, you know, on the flip side, much I hate to say it, if it doesn't go well for Southampton and results don't go our way, I mean, you're you're going to hear all kinds of crazy suggestions of what should happen. So, you know, I, all I'm saying is Sean Dyche is available. You know, I I just I don't want to say anything more than that. 
but I think it's something that we should at least recognize. Sean Dyche is available. All right. That seems like a perfectly good note to leave it on a Friday and a very good Friday at that. I hope anybody celebrating uh, the holiday has a wonderful holiday and a happy Easter. We'll be back with an instant reaction to go over how Arsenal finally did get that 10 no. And, um, you know, what it says about how we're going to perform in the Champions League next season. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my hands. Thanks, Pause. A happy Easter. Jesus is dead, man. Dead. Doesn't rise till Sunday. <laughs> Woohoo! God. All right, that'll do it. Happy Passover to everybody celebrating that as well. I hope you have a great Seder and happy Easter as well. Uh, we will leave it there. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Southampton 0. 